All right. Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. Open your Bibles up to John chapter 4. And we have been studying through the Gospel of John, and uh, particularly this week, pretty much, in John chapter 3 and John chapter 4. And we've been looking at the Samaritan woman setting. Uh, Jesus has left Judea, and, um, and uh, it's been the Passover time, and he's been there. And, and, of course, he's been in the conversation with Nicodemus in early chapter 3. And then mid-stride chapter 3, he comes out in the Judean uh, countryside. And uh, he's working with John the Baptist uh, and his disciples there. There's some interaction going on. And uh, he gets, at the beginning of John chapter 4, uh, he gets kind of, you might say, tracked down. The, the, the Pharisees are keeping an eye on him and they're investigating him and really keeping tabs on everything that he's doing. And in his frustration, uh, I believe, he leaves to go back to home which we get like that from time to time, get frustrated and, and uh, you know, uh, he has such a, a, you can really sense in his, in his, you know, his actions, his words, that he's so frustrated with Judea, uh, you know, the religious center uh, of, of Israel, uh, Jerusalem, you know, he just, they aren't, they, aren't get, they aren't getting on board, you know. They're the ones that uh, uh, you'd expect to get on board with what he's talking about, and they're not. It's killing him. And, uh, and he just wants to go home. So he, he's on his way back from Galilee. And he stops in this, this town. Uh, there's, Samaria is a province kind of deal. And there's a town of Sychar. And uh, it's the middle of the day. He stops there at this well at Sychar. Sends his disciples in to buy some food. And we pick up the story. Uh, this woman of Samaria comes out. And as we looked at uh, a couple nights ago. Yeah, a couple nights ago. This woman of Samaria comes out. And uh, she... She is uh, frustrated. She's coming out at the wrong time of day. There's all kinds of, there's all kinds of clues in the text that says this is not a, nor a normal circumstance. Uh, there's no other women involved. She's not with anybody else. She's doing this chore in the middle of the afternoon. She shouldn't be doing that in the middle of the afternoon. That's a morning type of chore. You don't do the, the, the rigorous work of dragging this water jar all the way out there to get water in the middle of the afternoon. You do that in the morning before it gets hot. So she does this. And, uh, and there's some other things involved there. Jesus is already clued in. He's already uh, has this knowledge of her situation. He senses her frustration. So he begins this conversation with her, and she's kind of set back, shocked even at, 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 her, uh, at him talking with her. And uh, it seems to all revolve around this subject of water. She thinks the big deal in her life is water. See, she hates this chore. She hates this chore. And in her mind, if she didn't have to do this chore anymore, she wouldn't be exposed. She wouldn't have to go through the humiliation of having to do this all by herself, going out in the afternoon, not being able to go with the other women, not being able to, to be involved in that group. Uh, and, and the bottom line is she's, she's considered an outcast. She's immoral. And we don't really know her circumstance. Um, we know that she, Jesus tells her that she has many husbands. Lets her, uh, he lets her know that he's aware of this. The man she's with now is not her husband. We don't know the extent of all that. But um, in, in the first few verses up through verse 15, he really plays off this idea uh, that she is desperate. And it's the truth. She is, she is desperate for fulfillment. She's in a desperate situation. She's tired of being the way she is. She's tired of going from husband to husband to husband. And Jesus looks at her as if she is the prime candidate for the kingdom. And so uh, he offers her this living water. Uh, which is really going to solve all of her water problems. See, the idea is, is what he says down in verse 13, is everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. 
But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life, which is that quality of life that we've been talking about. And she desperately wants that quality of life. And so the woman says, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Because she desperately hates that. And uh, so we want to pick up the conversation there in verse 15 and want to follow it down through, the, uh, through verse 26, which is right before the disciples return. And in this passage, oh, this is incredible. It's a wonderful truth. He exposes to her that her real issue is not the water. She, her real problem is not that she has to come out here and draw water. And you could take away the water issue. See, he could give her this living water, if, we were, if that was going to be literal. If he could give her this water that would well up to eternal life so she wouldn't have to come here and draw this drinking water anymore, uh, the problem would still remain in her life. So the problem isn't the water. The problem is her relationship and her intimacy, her lack of intimacy, therefore, of, uh, with God. She doesn't have that. That's her real problem. And Jesus is making that known to her. And they get into this r religious battle, this uh, religious uh, kind of jostling back and forth on how to deal with this, in, uh, this, uh, this issue of sin in her life and separation from God. So I want to read this with you. Uh, John chapter 4, verses 15 through 26. And then we want to look at it together. And uh, I'm reading out of the NIV. This is how it reads. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And Jesus tells her, go, call your husband. She says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're right. When you say you have no husband, the fact is you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. See, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans wa uh, worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers of God will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his, spirit, uh, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, well, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he's going to explain everything to us. He's going to explain all these details to us, going to make this known to us. And then Jesus declared, the only place he does in the Gospel of John, I who speak to you am he. Father, we love you this morning. I seem to uh, always find myself confronted by your word and confronted by you. Uh, you are actively involved in my life, molding me into the man you want me to be. And it seems like in the midst of my problems and frustrations and inadequacies, I seem to search for a religious answer. Would you bring me back today to you? You are the only answer for my life. Uh, it's not a cliche. That's not a punchline. That's not just fancy preaching. That's not the typical answer. See, you are the answer for my life. You're the answer to every problem. When am I going to learn that the physical circumstances of my life that cause me frustration, that cause me pain, cause me grief, they're not the problem. And we could take those things out of my life and the, and the issues would still remain that cause me pain and frustration. 
Would you bring us back to the, the reality that what's really going on in our life in the midst of all the, the, the messed up circumstances, in the midst of all the pain and all the suffering and all the frustration. See, those things do not stem from the physical circumstances in my life. They stem from my lack of closeness with you. I believe that. Man, I believe that. Would you bring that clear through your word today? And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, I, uh, this illustration has been around for a long time. I've heard it before. And uh, a friend of mine talked about it in one of his sermons recently. And it's the perfect illustration of what we're talking about here. And, it, and he heard it back when he was in college. And he's an older guy now. He's 60, 60 some. But he heard it back when he was in college. And it's been around probably farther uh, before that. But it's the idea that we've been talking about in terms of the quality of life. We tend to judge our quality of life uh, through physical circumstances. Uh, hey, how's it going, man? I haven't talked to you in a while. Oh, it's going great. Really? What's going on? Well, uh, I got my truck fixed, and it's running well. And, uh, yeah, I got, I got off work Monday, and so my wife and I are going to go out running around having a good time. Oh, that sounds great. Talk to him a few days later. Hey, how's, your, how's it going, man? Well, it's going terrible. What happened? Well, my truck broke down again. And I thought I was going to get Monday off, but I didn't get it off. So I don't get to spend time with my wife. And we tend to base those type of uh, we tend to base, you know, our attitudes based off the circumstances in our life. Uh, there's no instance in the, in the word where you're called to be happy. Happy is uh, the literal translation of the bottom line of happy comes from, or happiness comes from happenings. And I'm happy based on my happenings. And so we don't live like that. We don't live like that. There's an underlying joy for the Christian. The quality of life for the Christian is such that there's this intimacy and this closeness to God that somehow in the midst of my life and all of the mess that goes on, see, that stuff doesn't change my, that stuff does not change this, this, this deep-rooted joy in my life. Uh, and so I'm, I shouldn't be swayed. And I, and I am, and I'm human, and I'm learning, probably because I taught myself for 22 years to live that way. Now, my life was going good when things were going good. Uh, but that, that's, not, that's not the issue that, uh, that, that we need to be facing in our life. That what, where joy comes from, where peace and, 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 and tranquility, all those kinds of things, those are the product of the intimacy and closeness with him, not the product of my happenings and circumstances. And this is so strong of language that we Christians base our theology on this. We base our understanding of God and our relationship with him on this. Uh, the guy who goes to prison, and he's, he's in prison for a double life sentence. He's never going to get out. Uh, he, he's, been, he's lived a horrible life, and, and he's 20 years old, and he's, he, the rest of his life is going to be in prison. And he finds Jesus. And see, there's, there's no second-class Christianity here. Wow. See, that's great news. There's no second-class Christianity. See, he is literally receiving the same quality of life that you and I are going to receive. And, and it, that boggles our mind because we're thinking, well, I can go fishing. And you can't. Uh, I mean, I can go hunting or I can go golfing, if you like that sort of thing. I... You know, I can, see, I can, I can kiss my wife. I can, I can have children, man. I can play with them in the park. I can, I can go on vacation to Europe. If I was a rich pastor, I could go on vacation to Europe. You know, I could go to Canada <laughs> or, or Alaska, you know. Yeah, I could do all of these great things, and he can't do that. And what the Bible tries to tell me is that does not limit his quality of life. 
Or that doesn't, that doesn't mean that my quality of life is better than his quality of life. See, that, that's not the concept here. That's not what he's talking about. Somehow the quality of life is not determined by the physical circumstances of our life. It's determined by the intimacy that we have with the Father. And see, I, I really do. I want to I get to the point in my life. I, I want to the, the, come to the point in my life, and I don't know how to, to phrase that, but I want to get to the point where physical circumstances, although are not comfortable, they just don't, they don't distract me from him. Uh, I've been watching this Michael Jordan. It's, it's the, it's the uh, you know, his, his last. He's getting ready to retire, and he's serious this time. <laughs> and uh, I'm watching the All-Star game, and they're interviewing him. And uh, they asked him if it, said, would you, and he has a pretty good insight on this. They said, if you could change anything in your career, would you change it? And he says, no. I wouldn't even change what we would consider bad things. Because bad things, th without those bad things happening, good things wouldn't have happened out of that kind of thing. And the bad things, although I had to go through those, taught me things. And we had to go, and he talked about his team, and that one of the toughest teams he ever had to play, if you ever followed Jordan, one of the toughest teams he ever played was the Detroit Pistons and Isaiah Thomas. I mean, those teams hated each other. And it literally got to the point where Michael was saying that, hey, every time I went to the lane, I knew that I was going to be confronted with a career-ending foul. That's how bad it was. And those guys were coming out of those games with broken noses, and I mean, just, I mean, it was threatening. But he said, we as a team had to go through that kind of stuff. And it doesn't take away the joy of the game. See, the, 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 the trucks of my life and the frustrations in marriage and with kids, and I'm not, I'm not going to have perfect kids. But see, that, 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 see, I don't have to have perfect kids in order to love my kids and enjoy being a parent type of thing. Those are just a part of the game, a part of the game of life that makes sense. So what's going on in this situation is this woman is falling, falling victim to, to the typical thing that you and I fall to. She is blaming the physical circumstances in her life for the, for the cause of unhappiness, for the cause of lack of fulfillment, for the cause of, of not having you know, acceptance, all of those self-esteem issues, everything that's surrounding this circumstance, she's blaming the physical circumstances in her life. And Jesus is trying to get her to understand that, hey, it's not the physical circumstances in your life. It's the lack of intimacy that you have with God and the result of the sin in your life. And I don't want to beat this to death, but see, I have met people that uh, are depressed and they're on all kinds of medication. And uh, we, I mean, I have sat and talked, you'd be surprised, oftentimes what, what people will share with an evangelist, which I run and tell your pastor, uh, <laughs> because I want to be consistent with your pastor. I'm not a dumping station. But uh, when you really get down to the what's going wrong, see, a lot of times, it's either one, unconfessed sin in their life, or number two, they're handling something they should never handle that God should be handling. And they find themselves out of control and it just drives them crazy, and they have to go get on Prozac, or they have to go get on Valium, and, and to be able to cope with the circumstance. Wouldn't it be great to not to cope with it? Just to take that thing and drop it in his lap and say, you deal with this, because I can't deal with it. Because we were never meant to deal with that. So the lack of control of our physical circumstances drive us crazy, which is driving this woman crazy. It's the center of her life. She's frustrated. Now, here's where we're going to pick it up. You come into verse 15, <coughs> and she really wants, see, Jesus is really leading her down the road that she wants to go, if you understand. He really taps into this water issue. She's really frustrated with this whole deal. She wants to, she never wants to come out here and return to this well again. If she was able to just, hey, forget this kind of deal and, and hey, never have to come out here to draw this water, you know, for, for drinking water, uh, which is apparently the conversation that's, that's going on here, she would be absolutely just thrilled about it. She would be thrilled about it. And so Jesus leads her down here. And so she says, give me this water, sir. Hey, I really want this. You know, the conversation has moved in that direction. And Jesus says in verse 16, 
changes strides. It's almost like he changes the conversation. He says, uh, go call your husband. And uh, she sat back, probably a little defensive. Notice her reply is really short. She uh, says, don't have a husband. Doesn't even want to go down that road. And Jesus, here it is, let's, let's go of the insight that he has. And he says, you're right when you say you don't have a husband. The fact is, the real deal is, you've had five husbands. And the man you're now with is not your husband. What you said is quite true. And so he takes her out of this water issue. And we're still really dealing with that pain and suffering and frustration. But he really kind of uncovers the whole thing and lets, him, lets her know what he's talking about. Now, at this point, he uncovers sin in her life. He uncovers the, the immoral lifestyle in her life. Hey, this, this is the reason you're frustrated. This is the, the problem that you're having. See, if you wouldn't be living an immoral life, the water issue wouldn't be an issue. And it really comes down to it. She would like to be involved with this water. She would love to get up in the morning and see the ladies walking by her house and yelling in there, Hey, Mary, if that's her name. Everyone was named Mary in this day. But hey, Mary, uh, you ready? Yeah, and grabs her jar and she comes out and, and she's laughing and talking, gets the latest spill. And oh, your husband did this. Oh, my husband does that all the time. See, she wants those types of conversations. She wants that intimacy and bonding and, and relationship, fellowship. She wants that kind of stuff. Uh, and so Jesus opens up her eyes to this whole deal or he's in the process of this that the real issue in your life is not water the real issue in your life is your sin which is keeping you out of intimacy with God it's this blockade in your life of lack of intimacy with the Father this is your deal and how does she respond to this in verse 19 sir the woman said I can see that you're a prophet obviously he has insight into her life and that's typical of prophets prophets were always doing that and she comes up with this answer <laughs> and this is oh, we are so like this. She says, now listen. She puts up these defenses. All these walls start going up. And she grabs for the religious answer. She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews, see the distance there? Well, uh-uh. You Jews claim the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Basically, hey, don't, don't you get on me about this. Hey, our fathers, we worship on this mountain. You Jews don't want anything to do with us. There's a separation. You have your temple. The Samaritans, you understand, had their temple. They had their own temple. And this stemmed all the way back, and I can give you some brief information on this. This stemmed all the way back. If you go back and read uh, the book of 2 Kings, you're going to find that uh, the Assyrians came in and they conquered Israel because of their sin. And they deported all the people. And in the, de in the deportation of all the people, uh, Syria became overpopulated, uh, overpopulated. And so what the king does is he grabs some of his own people and he deports them back to Samaria. And the whole idea there was, is if he was going to spread open his kingdom, if he was going uh, to control his kingdom, what he would want to do is he would have want to have some of their people in his country and some of his people in their country so there would be a mix between, if that makes sense. See, if it was just all their people, let me give you an example of this. If, um, uh, if let's say, something tragic happened where, let's say, China come in and took over the United States. Uh, what they might do is deport half of the United States over to China and deport half of China over here so there would be a mix of control. Because if they don't have a delegation here, if they don't have a presence here, how can they control? So that, that was the whole idea of the king, is he deported the people, some of his people, over there into Samaria. And he, he settled this whole colony of people. Well, there became a problem. Uh, people were dying off, and, and there was disease, and there was, there was all kinds of uh, things that are going on, uh, death. And so you have the leaders that write back to Syria and say, hey, we got a big problem. The God of this land, they had a pagan understanding of gods. The God of this land 
uh, obviously has different customs, different ways of worship, different cultic practices than we're used to, and uh, we need someone to train us how to live to the God of this land. So the Assyrian king goes, oh, not a problem. He goes down to Jerusalem, grabs one of their high priests, brings him in, slams him down in Samaria, and says, train the people how to worship God. And so they introduced the law to those people. And so you would think there would be this, this there was going to be this, uh, uh, you, uh, there's similarity between Judah, Judah and, and Israel that, and Samaria. But what happened was is the people who were there kept some of their idols. They kept some of their worship, and it became more of a blended type of religion. So they did serve the same God that the Israel people did. They did, like for instance, the Samaritans did serve the same God that the Jews served, but the Samaritans had twisted stuff. They had twisted the scriptures, they had taken out some things, and they had added some things, and there was this perversion of what was going on. So it, to the point where, <clears throat> that when Nehemiah came back with Ezra to build the temple, and that thing was going on, Samaritans come over and goes, hey, we want to help. And they said, no, get out of here. So you've been tainted, you've been corrupted, you've been polluted, your bloodline is not, is not pure anymore, you're kind of a half-breed, we don't want you involved with us, stay away. So this created, uh, uh, created incredible uh, uh, tension between Samaria and, and, uh, and uh, of course, uh, Israel. And so are, are the Jews, Samaritans and Jews, just incredible t uh, tension between them. And so what ends up happening is the Samaritans said, fine, we don't need you anyway. So they changed some of the things, and they had some viable, they had some viable relationship between them and God. Jacob had come from this land, had, had God had blessed this, uh, blessed this, you know, and, and done some things with his people in here. And so they built their own temple on Mount Ger Gerizim, I think it's what it's called. Uh, built its own, their own temple there. And uh, that's in verse... 19 and 20. Yeah, it's Mount Gerizim. It's Mount Gerizim where they built their own temple. And they had their own sacrifices and they had their own deal. A lot of that was similar. But they also only, only considered, see, the prophets came to Judah and Israel. The prophets came to the Jews. So they didn't have all, any of the prophet stuff. They didn't have any of the prophet uh, scriptures that foretold of the Messiah. So even their understanding of the coming Messiah, isn't this exciting? Even their, uh, even their understanding of the coming, uh, coming Messiah was kind of tainted. They only had half the scriptures. And so what she says is, hey, listen, you have your way of worship. We have our way of worship. Hey, you don't want anything to do with us, and that's fine. We're not good enough for you, apparently. So we, I, I worship on, I worship up here. You claim we have to worship in Jerusalem. So don't be criticizing me about my life. Don't be telling me about the sin. Don't, don't be talking to me about my husband problems. See, you don't live where I live. You don't function where I, you have your way. I have my way. Do you see that? That's what she says. Uh, that's, that's not too difficult to understand because it's really not too difficult from our society. Um... I, I, in traveling, I meet all sorts of people. And uh, one of the things that I see a lot is families get married. Husband and wife come together. Mom comes from Church of the Nazarene. Gets married in the Church of the Nazarene. Kind of how it goes. You know, always want to get married. She has her dreams. The husband just says, let's get this over with. Hopefully as cheap as possible. And so oftentimes, I see him in the Church of the Nazarene. The wife, the mother, uh, the woman is a Nazarene. And the husband is, let's say, Catholic. And uh, those bring up incredible issues in the family, and they never resolve that. Uh, and I talk to people all the time about this. Pastor, you probably do as well. Is, uh, hey, I'm dating somebody. Oh, that's great. Is he a Christian? Well, yeah, loves God. Uh, really need to be careful on that. See, my mother, my mother grew up Methodist. My father grew up Mormon. Why they got married, I have no idea. I still haven't figured that out. 
Because that caused tension in the home to the point where they got a divorce three times. <laughs> divorce, back together, divorce, back together, divorce, back together. Made best friends to learn in the life. But, and my dad ended up leaving Mormonism. But see, growing up, my dad, every morning, Sunday morning, would get up and there'd be tension in the home and the lack of unity. And, and of course, that brought in problems. They didn't worship together. They didn't do their devotions together. None of that kind of stuff. Dad went to the Mormon church. Mom went across the field to the little Baptist church, took us kids. And see, that, that the problems in it. Dad had his way and his understanding of how the marriage was to work. And that's Mormons really twisted. And see, he had his, he had his view of how the family is supposed to function. And she had her view of how the family is supposed to function. And that caused incredible tension. And so I see this all the time. And in, term, and in terms of dealing with inconsistencies, now listen to this. In terms of dealing with inconsistencies in our life, in terms of dealing with sin, conviction of sin in our life, we tend to go, we tend to resolve that with, with a religious answer based on our background. Now let me give you an example of this. Uh, I, I met a guy. I'm just going to give you examples that I've met. Uh, people that I've met encountered examples from this. I met a guy who... Uh, had an inconsistent lifestyle, and uh, he's an alcoholic. And uh, this is in the Marine Corps, by of all, of all means. And man had a mouth like a sailor, oh, like a Marine, because <laughs> he was a Marine. And just had, oh, he had problems, had inconsistencies. And uh, said he, uh, one day he told me, yeah, you know, uh, what are you doing Sunday? He's, oh, I got to go to mass, and or Saturday night, got to go to mass, you know, first, and and then I'll get with you. And I thought, you go to church? He goes, no, I go to, I, I'm a Catholic. I'm a Catholic. I said, well, you don't live. He goes, uh-uh. I go and confess every single week. See, every week he'd live. Well, he'd go out with me Friday night. He'd get more hammered than I would, but not often, but he would at times. And we would get, we'd party and, and girls and, and all that kind of stuff. And then, whoa, he'd go to church, walk into the little booth there, confess it all, and he'd be right. Oh, wow. And he would, he would, you know, pray he wouldn't go to hell and then live like that all week. Live like hell all week and then pray he wouldn't go to hell, if that, that makes sense. That's how he lived. That's how he functioned. And he would live that way and just hope he could make it. If I die, I hope it's on Saturday night after Mass. And uh, that's how he functioned. And he had a religious answer. See, the religious answer for the inconsistencies, the sin and the things in his life was a religious answer. Oh, I'm a Catholic. And uh, even a member of uh, my wife's family, we talked about that. Um, uh, we went to this wedding thing, and uh, this girl was getting drunk. And I said, I thought you were, I thought you were a Christian. She was, oh, I'm Catholic. <laughs> I'm Catholic, I can do this. I'm going to Mass tomorrow night anyway. And she sleeps around her boyfriend and all that. Oh, but I'm Catholic. And see, that's a religious answer. See, that's not, and Jesus comes against that with her. Comes against that with her. I'll give you another one. Uh, not only would pick on the Catholics, I'll pick on the Baptists for a while. And we're going to pick on Nazarenes too, because we get just as problems as the rest of them. The Baptists, they have a whole different religious answer. Not all of them. I, I'm not saying that all, I'm not legalistic in saying that all are this way. But these are different people that I've met. In terms of Baptists, uh, oftentimes, I've met a few that say, hey, uh, yeah, yeah, I get drunk, and yeah, I've cheated on my wife, but you understand we sin all the time anyway, and I'm eternally secure. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. I go to church every Sunday, but the problem is, is I'm not going to measure up anyway, so the religious answer for sin and inconsistency in my life is this religious answer that, hey, we're, we're, I'm going to live in sin for the rest of my life anyway, but I'm eternally secure. I got saved way back here. I haven't went to church since then, but hey, I'm still going to heaven because of this religious answer in my life. Now, those are, those are extremes and uh, easy to poke fun at. But you understand that uh, we Nazarenes have that same thing going on? Shake your head. Yeah, we do. We've got religious answers. And they uh, really come in probably two forms. 
we have the conservative religious answer, and we have the contemporary religious answer. The conservative religious answer is, the conservative answer to sin is legalism. That's the conservative answer to sin, most of the time. And it, that's, my, of course, my definition. I, I consider myself conservative, but I'm not legalistic. Or am I? Or am I legalistic? Um, we really get hard on drinking and smoking. Why? Well, it'll kill you. It's not good for you. One more, you're not supposed to drink. But number two, smoking, it causes cancer, it'll kill you. More people die from, being, uh, uh, from not eating correctly and being diabetic than they do smoking. There are more diabetics in the United States than smokers. Did you know that? That's the truth. That's the truth. There's more diabetics. And see, we're really hard. Oh, you, I can't believe you drank. And at the same time, see, that's a legalistic answer. If you want to deal with the sin in your life, well, come to church every single Sunday. Don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. Uh, don't watch MTV much. And, of course, don't watch radio. And they, we come up with these legalistic list of rules, and we come up with that stuff, and that's the answer for sin in our life. See, that's not the answer for sin in our life. See, there's not a religious answer in my life. Well, I'm having problems in my marriage. Oh, well, here's the formula. A plus B equals C, and your marriage will work. That's not how it works. That's not, that's not what we're getting at. See, you stop smiling. See, Baptists were fun. And Catholics were fun. <laughs> Nazarenes aren't that fun. And then you had the, and I've had contemporaries that go to the opposite extreme. I have teens that have been raised in church, and they hate the church. And now they get out, and, the only, and, and they, they won't come into a church, man. Uh, they, they, they can't stand it. They can't stand the old form. It just brings back all these memories. So they end up going to a church where it's maybe small groups or it's really loosely conservative, which are contemporary, which is contemporary is not bad, but they end up making these exceptions. They talk about freedom. No rules whatsoever. See, the conservative answer is setting all these rules. Contemporary seem to be no rules at all. And the issue is not the rules. This is not the rules. I have rules in my life, and I have, uh, I have laws in my life, but I'm not legalistic. And you can have rules and standards without being legalistic. I don't drink alcohol. I don't drink alcohol. And I've heard contemporary people, I've heard more modern, more, you know, those sort of people, I don't know what you would call them, liberals maybe, I've heard them say that if Jesus came, well, he'd have a beer. No, he wouldn't. <laughs> no, he wouldn't have a beer. Because look at the problem that alcohol is causing in our, in our country today. Paul wouldn't eat meat because it, it was causing people to stumble. You think Jesus would go have a beer to the guy who gets drunk every day and goes home and beats his wife? No. And I wouldn't have beer because, hey, maybe I only had, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, pastors and I have, have talked about this, and, and I'm not saying that I'm right on this, but for me, I wouldn't even drink wine because it tells my kid he can drink wine. And then what if he has a problem with that alcohol and gets an al becomes an alcoholic? Or what if I have one beer? And an emergency happens where I have to take my son to the hospital. And I get pulled over. Bam, DUI. And say, well, I only had one beer. And I'm not an alcoholic. But see the image of that. Oh, hey, the pastor doesn't see he drinks. See, honey, there's nothing wrong with it. I can drink. See the ramifications of that? Jesus would not do that. That's right. I'm an ordained elder in the church of the Nazarene. And I don't do this. In the name of Jesus, I don't do this. I don't smoke. But I still, and I can't believe this is going on tape, but I still don't think... <laughs> There is nothing wrong with having a cigar once in a while. Personal opinion. I don't do it. I'm not going to encourage you to do it. But I, I want to ask you, just to, just to ask you, my father, loved Jesus, missionary in the Church of the Nazarene, would go out fishing, and he'd have a cigar 
when he was fishing. He would look at me and say, it's to keep the bugs away, mosquitoes, <laughs> which, wasn't, which wasn't true. You know, of course that. But does that hurt you once in a while? And I know the church then has raised oh, no tobacco. And so, hey, I don't, I don't drink tobacco, so please don't, don't be frustrated. <laughs> I don't smoke tobacco. So you can stop giving me that look. I'm not smoking tobacco. I'm not encouraging teenagers to smoke. Now, obviously, cigarettes, I don't, cigarettes are different, you know. But see, where's the line on that? See, where's the line on that? Paul says stuff like, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, man. And I consider it, I, I'm telling you, man, it is a huge responsibility for me to live as a minister. And I think we're all ministers. But the problem that I'm facing in my life is there's not a plain, flat, religious answer, man. There's not. There's not a plain, flat, religious answer. How do you answer that? Is alcohol bad? Well, it's in NyQuil. <laughs> it's in NyQuil. I, it's in my deodorant. I don't get that kind anymore. It burns my, my pits. But see, uh, alcohol, is alcohol bad? Is alcohol bad? Well, my grandma told me when she was a little kid they didn't have NyQuil. What do they call them? Hot toddies? Is that what they call them? Well, is that bad? Well, see, then alcohol's not bad. It's the use of alcohol. And there has to be. Well, who monitors that? Ah, would you believe me if I told you that you were never meant to monitor that kind of stuff? See, you're never meant to monitor your own Christian life. You're never meant to measure. There's no, there's no, see, we don't have the law anymore. See, this woman right here, this is, this is, she is bound by the old covenant. See, her monitor, her, her guideline, her, her standard of life always came back to the law. And Jesus says, hey, you got sin in your life. She says, oh, hey, don't, I've got my, I've got my law. I've got my standard. I live my life based off the model of this standard. Hey, I go, I offer the right sacrifices, hey, and, yada, yada, and, and the proof of the law, you're allowed to have a divorce, and you know, and those, those kinds of things, and she throws up this defense of the law. But see, Christianity is the end, of, Christ is the end of the law. See, we, and, and this is difficult, there's a, there's a place for the Ten Commandments, but I don't teach the Ten Commandments. I'm not saying you shouldn't go out and kill, but see, the standard is no longer the Ten Commandments. Uh, tithing. You cannot find in the New Testament where it says, Paul says, give 10% of your money. That's an Old Testament concept. Tithing is an Old Testament concept. Shake your heads. It's true. Tithing is an Old Testament concept. What's the New Testament concept? Give all your money. In fact, Jesus, he seemed to talk down on those people who came in and gave 10% and then the woman who came in and gave everything. He said, who fulfilled the law? She did. So if you make $150,000 a year and give 10%, are you faithful? What do you consider faithful? I consider the young couple who gets married and is making 20% and doing everything they can to give 10% of that, barely making by, go without eating because they're tithe. They're being faithful. So it's not wrong to give 10%. I'm not saying, hey, you want a, you want a guideline for 10%. Hey, you do 10%, that's great. But it's not just 10%, man. See, this is not a legalistic, I filled my quota type of thing. That's got to make sense to us. See, it's not a religious answer. Jesus is in charge of your finances. You're not in charge of your finances. See, the greatest problem with this woman, the greatest, she's got her religious answer. Hey, I got my religious I go through, I, we worship every Sunday morning. Do you worship? Sure, I worship. I stood up and sang, didn't I? I read through the songs. But see, I monitor that. Well, how do you know you worshiped? Because I did this, 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 and this, and this. We come back to this doing language type of stuff. Uh, Jesus criticized this. On the last day, people are going to come to him and say, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. And he says, you missed the whole thing. 
See, it's not about coming back to this, this doing, this, this religious answer, this, this standard that I've set up in my life. Hey, this right here that's going on. Hey, I live my life according to this standard. And I have my standard, and maybe you have your standard. I have my understanding, you have your understanding. I live by my list, you live by your list. We're not about that, you understand? That's truth. That's biblical. And so Jesus comes against that. And this is what he says. He says, believe, oh, get a hold of this. This is where freedom happens. He looks at her and he says, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. See, he's taking away the lists. Listen to me. Stay with me. He's, he's taking away the lists. He's taking away that stuff. And it's not that you can't worship here or can't worship in Jerusalem, not on this mountain or in Jerusalem. He's not saying you can't. He's saying that he's taking away the list. He's taking away the measuring rod. He's taking away that. He says, the time is coming when you worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. See, and, but he, he adds a disclaimer. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. In other words, he's saying, listen to me. Listen to me. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. In other words, he says, hey, I'm telling you that the Jewish understanding of the new covenant that's going to come, the Messiah, ushering in the kingdom of God, we know what that's, you don't know what this, you're, see, you don't know. Salvation is to come from the Jews. And of course, she later says the Messiah is going to come. He's going to explain everything. He says, I'm him. I'm coming from the Jews. And he says, in verse 23, he says, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers of God will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. See, they had, man, I'm telling you, you understand this, they had laws on how to worship. Hey, you had to come down to this type of feast. You had to offer this kind of sacrifice. You had to offer it in this time frame. You had to celebrate it in this way. You had to do it with these types of tools. You had to take, I mean, just, I mean they had that thing listed out. They had word-for-word word laws. You had to walk through this, 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 and this. That's how you had to do it. But Jesus, the time is coming when that's, that's gone. That's out of here. Because that could not remove the deal of sin in your life. See, a time is coming when you're not going to come back to this list that you're going to worship not in terms of these standards and you have your standards and we have our standards. See, that's not the deal. A time is coming when you're going to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, Jewish concept of spirit, there's several things. I want to write these down for you. You probably want to, you can and do them on your own. But the, the Jewish concept of spirit is not our concept of spirit today. And it's, I can't exhaust this. I'm still working this out in my own life and studying the scriptures. And, and I'm not, you know, hey, I'm not, I'm not an expert on this by any means. But their concept of spirit is vastly different than our concept of spirit. Uh, and I have questions about this, but we're going to work through it. The idea of the spirit is is the Spirit was the Spirit of God, even in this passage when you find Spirit, it carries with it the idea of wind or breath. In fact, that's what Jesus talks to Nicodemus back in chapter 3 about. He says uh, in verse 7, You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. See, the difference, and this is, I don't know if you know this or not, but in the original language, you have the word spirit and you have the word wind. But if you take off one little letter from one of them, they look the exact same. They're the same word. They're the same word. Spirit, I think it is, just has a little letter on the end of it that separates it. It literally means breath or movement or wind. 
And what Jesus tells Nicodemus is, hey, man, you shouldn't be surprised about me telling you being born of the Spirit, this lifestyle by the Spirit. I mean, the wind blows, and you can see the effects of the wind, and the cups skipping across the ground, and the trees that are moving, the flag that's... But see, you don't know where the wind's coming from or where it's going. It's the same thing with the Spirit. It's the same thing with the Spirit in a believer's life. You see what the guy is doing. You see how he's living. You see the effects of the Spirit in his life. But you don't know where he's coming or where he's going because it's directed and moved by the Spirit. Does that make sense? See, this is what he's talking about here. And, of course, he says that uh, uh, he's talking about the Spirit idea. So the Spirit is an all, in, uh, this wind or breath idea is to the Jew, this all, now stay with me, is this all-encompassing deal for the believer. Uh, and I'll share some of these with you. Obviously, we know that God breathed in man the breath of life, and he became a living soul. He became a living soul. That's body and spirit. And without God, see, we don't live because our spirit is a product of him breathing inside of us, that wind, that breath of life. See, you can't, I cannot live without God. He is a sustaining factor in our life. And in the book of Isaiah, and there's a ton of these. I just wrote down a couple of them. In Isaiah 42, 5, this is what he says, and I'll just read these to us. This is what uh, God the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. And then he goes on to talk about it. God is the sole responsible factor in terms of life of the human being. And it all comes back to this breath of life, this spirit idea. Uh, he says in, um, uh, uh, and uh, the, the spirit uh, involved in our life is the seat for the Jew, is the seat of all emotions. See, this worshiping in spirit, this spirit idea was huge to the Jew. You could not have emotions talked about outside of the spirit. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 6, this is what the Lord says. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young, only to be rejected as an example of that. See, the seat of the emotions was found tied to the spirit idea. Uh, this breath of life idea is the seat not only of our emotions, but of our intellect. Listen to what he says in Job chapter 32. Verse 8. <clears throat> but, but it is the spirit in a man the breath of the Almighty that gives him understanding. See, it is by the Spirit of God, it is the Spirit inside of us, the breath of life, the cause of God's intervening in our life that we're able to have intellect and wisdom and thought process. This product of the Spirit. This breath of life idea is uh, the stage by which God interacts and influences man. Now, this is really neat. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 30, and there's tons of these, of course. This is what's happening. This king of uh, Heshbon uh, refused to let us pass through. For the Lord your God had made his spirit stubborn and his heart abstinent in order to give him into your hands as he has now done. So God has moved in his spirit in order to make him stubborn. So he has influenced this man. The point of contact for God in our life is the spirit. That's the Jewish concept of spirit. The breath of life is where God empowers. In other words, this, this idea of spirit that he's talking about, this all-encompassing, is, is, is the point of contact where God empowers man. And uh, it's in the book of Judges, uh, all throughout chapter 14. And we know what this is about, Samson. And I'll just give you two of them. 
the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. Spirit of God empowering that boy. That's the, all prophecy from the prophets came from the Spirit of God. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. He went down to this one Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of their belongings, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. See, this is, this is the concept of spirit. The concept of spirit in our day is probably not the concept of spirit in their day. See, the content, concept of spirit in our day is, is not this all-encompassing type of deal. See, to the Jewish, when Jesus says the worshipers of God, the, 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 worshipers, the worshipers that God seeks are those who worship in spirit and in truth. So when he's talking about worshiping in spirit, it is an all-encompassing thing. It's not a list of things that I do. It's not a, a bunch of rules and regulations that I adhere to. It is an all-encompassing involvement of God in my life. And as we've been talking about in John chapter 3, it's this turning from a life of living out of the flesh, which is the law type of deal, mm -hmm. and facing a whole new life where God empowers me and fills me with his spirit and guides and directs me and I live in response to that spirit. So it's this all-encompassing. So hey, wh what guidelines do you give a person down to his job? Well, I'm having frustrations with my job. What's the A plus B plus C? Or A plus B equals C formula for the problem down on my job? Jesus, man. Let God move down in the middle of your life to the point where when you're down at your job facing that problem, it's him down at your job facing that problem. It's an all-encompassing in your life. It's not this doing formula of, hey, do this, this, and this. I flip open the Bible to this passage, and I get this, this formula. Uh, look up, whole, having a problem with my pastor. Okay, that's page uh, 35. When having a problem with the pastor, here's the three different solutions. You're never going to find that. See, that's old covenant mindset. That's where she's living. Change my physical circumstances, and it'll probably be done. The deal what Jesus is talking about is we worship in spirit and in truth. This all-encompassing of God moving in my life, directing, controlling, everything that I'm, I'm involved in, he's involved in. Paul talks about this. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Worship in spirit and truth. Spiritual act of worship. What's that? Offer your body as a living sacrifice. Every single day, everything that I do, every attitude that I have, every word that I say, every relationship that I share with my wife, with my friends, it's this spirit involvement. I offer my body as a living sacrifice to him. He's involved in all of that. Wow. And when he says truth, this is truth. Jesus said, hey, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You want to know what the truth of the circumstances are in your life. They're not tied around circumstances. They're tied to your relationship with God. In fact, what I have found, even recently with my truck, which you're familiar with, is that the real truth of that circumstance, when I get into him, I see it the way he sees it. See, if I'm apart from God, oh, I see it the way I see it. It's despair. How's this going to work out? What am I going to do? I'm leaning on my old resources. I'm going back to my list. What church can I manipulate to take care of this truck? <laughs> Who can I beg for money? What MasterCard can I use? But when I come into the Spirit and he's got his absolute involvement in this situation, I realize that he has calculated into his plan this problem in my life, that he wasn't surprised by this, that he's leading me and guiding me in evangelism. He knew that my truck would break down, and I'm following him as he is leading me in this situation, and he takes care of it. Man, if I could uh, pound this into my brain... And pound it in yours as well. 
Would you drop the list? I am so sick of doing language stuff. See, it's not about, I'm, I'm so sick of, uh, of, of searching for a religious answer in my life. If you're struggling in your marriage, the answer is, well, I need to come to church more. That's not the deal. Yeah, I need to come to church more. Well, I'm having a problem with my finances. Oh, it's because I haven't been tithing. I need to give 10% of my money. So you can give 10% of your money and still be in charge of your finances. Let God stomp down in the midst of your finances and take control of those things. That's what he wants. He wants to have all involvement. He tells this woman of Samaria that if you're going to worship the true worshipers of God, don't, hey, don't go over there to worship. We don't come down here to worship. We don't come back to this list of doing stuff, this, this standard, these practical things that I do. The wor true worshipers of God have the God all involved, the total involvement of God in my life. And I live in response to the Spirit, and the truth of God is displayed in my life. I see the truth of the circumstances. I live, in a, I, live, I live in the world, but not of the world. And I live in a reality that the world does not see. I was in a service a couple weeks ago, and I watched a young girl go into, go into what they called, what they called uh, anxiety attack. And I talked to her. She, had, she, was a, she was into Satanism and had a pentagram on her arm. She wasn't a bad girl. She just was so desperate for fulfillment. Father had been abusing her, all those kinds of things. They said she's having an anxiety attack. I said, no, I'm, I'm seeing this thing in another whole way. That's not an anxiety attack. That is the product of the Word of God confronting sin in her life. And that was demonic involvement stuff. That's a whole different thing, man. See, that's a whole different thing. See, uh, immorality. See, sexual involvement outside of marriage as this lady was involved in. See, she sees it with a physical deal. Well, we're going to get married anyway. The spiritual reality of that is totally different, man. See, I see that totally different than he is. I see that totally different than she might see it. Would you live like that? Oh, let's get out of this doing language, this, this, this religious answer. And he is the only answer we have. He is the answer for my life. Having problems down at my church, let's come back before him. Having problems in my home, let's come to him. Having problems in my finances, let's come to him. Hey, bring him in the midst of everything that's going on in my life. Well, we need to quit. Father, we love you this morning. We really need you to convey this. It seems so radical, but it's the new covenant, the unleashing of God in our bodies, in our lives. So we no longer use you to fix our physical circumstances. We no, no, no longer use your power and your authority and your providing to overcome in our life and the problems. See, you, you have made it possible. Remove the, the barrier through your son that you can come down, stomp right down the trail of our life and handle those things yourself because we can't handle them. I trust you. Be with us today in Jesus' name. Amen.